evening. Look at the words there, bearing shame and scoffing rude. My spine when we read those words. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And then the last line, or the last verse, when he comes, do we live in the light of his second coming? Do we believe that when the Lord is coming back, will we be ready? What will he find us doing whenever the Lord comes back again, whenever he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring? Then I knew this song we'll sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's, I suppose, in part the theme that we're thinking of this evening for a few moments. I want you to turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we'll have here the lovely account of how the Lord Jesus Christ went out of his way for the one that was Zacchaeus. But then immediately after that, in verse 11, we read of how he spoke, spoke on, ministered on to those who were gathered round about. Look at verse 11 of Luke chapter 19. It starts off with that little conjunction. That's what the word and is. A conjunction that joins the former with what we're just about to read. We will reference, of course, the first few verses. The first few verses, it might be said, that are also introduced with the word and. Chapter 19 is introduced with that little conjunction. But look at verse 11. We want to read down to the end of verse 28. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. And as they, and we'll think in a moment of who the they are, essentially it's those that were contained there and spoken about in verse 7. But we read of how they heard these things. He added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought, this is the context here, because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. That's the key thought here, and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds, that's one pound each, and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Brief instruction, but they knew exactly what he meant. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, imagine this, imagine one thing thinking it, but it's quite another to actually send a message after him. That's what they did at the end of verse 14. The message said, we will not have this man to reign over us. Isn't that the message? Isn't that the sentiment? Isn't that the thought of so many in our land even today? We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, these ten servants, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, Thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thy authority over ten cities. We believe this to be a direct reference to something that we find will occur in the millennium. 
This man was given the privilege, because of his faithfulness, to reign over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept led up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, thou takest up, thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou. He wasn't just lazy. He wasn't just slothful. He wasn't just missing something, but rather, look at the very terminology we have there in the heart of verse 22. Thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that which that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore, thou givest not thy money unto the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And I said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto every one that which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, this is a reference, we haven't had them referenced at all from verse 14, but here we have a reference yet again for the enemies, the citizens. But those mine enemies which would not, that I should reign over them, Bring hither and slay them before me. And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. Amen. And we do pray that the Lord himself might bless this, the reading of his own inspired word, even in our gathering here tonight. Let us bow briefly, please. We've had the reading of Scripture tonight. We're privileged There's places across the world that aren't able to do that in a public manner like this. Perhaps we don't appreciate the privileges we have. But let us still our hearts please now for a moment or two as we come before this portion even to consider it for the few moments we have tonight. Let us pray. Father, we do thank Thee for what we have before us tonight in the Word. We thank the Lord for the lessons that we can glean from it. We thank the Lord that it was given for a reason. Every single word of God is pure. It's there for a reason. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And Lord, I pray that Thou would bless us even tonight as we take a few moments to consider these words. Open up our understanding of Thy precious Word. Help us, Lord, not to deal with it in a light-hearted way. Oh, Lord, forgive us for treating Thy Word like that. But, Lord, that we might hang upon every word, every jot, every tittle, every single thing that's here for our learning and for our blessing even this evening. Help us now. Touch us for thy name's sake, we do plead. Amen. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ had, yet again, caused no small stir in yet another place. Here in this very chapter that we have here, chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel, we find him traveling through 
with his face steadfast, as it were, we believe, toward Calvary. But yet, once again, we find him taking a detour, if you like, or making a beeline in order to stop with a notable sinner. One who was despised. One who was hated by many around him. But here we find in the earlier verses, those ten verses that we did not read at the very start of the chapter, how the Lord Jesus Christ went out of his way to speak to this individual to bring him into the fold. I love the way we often find the Lord Jesus Christ doing that. I love the way we find in the Gospels especially. Of course, we find it in other places as well. We find how the Lord spoke to individuals, how the Lord called individuals. Think about how the Lord called Moses, the most unlikely place at the backside of the desert. Think about how the Lord spoke to that reluctant prophet by the name of Jonah. And here we have in these first 10 verses, the Lord going to that man called Zacchaeus and speaking to him and calling him to come down. For today I must abide at thy house. I love the way we find the Lord often doing that, especially when it comes to notable sinners such as this man. The first 10 verses of this 19th chapter really detail for us how the Lord Jesus Christ went to that cursed city. That's what it was, the city of Jericho, in order to meet up with that hated wee man that he might call him. Of course, we all know the story of Zacchaeus. We'll teach it to the children. And how he did exactly as he was bidden by the master. How he received him into his home. Now, why am I telling you something about this? It doesn't really relate to the verses that we've read together. It doesn't really relate to what we're going to study tonight. Oh, but it does. Because it was there in the home and in and around the home of Zacchaeus that the Lord Jesus Christ, yet again, we often find this. In fact, we always find this to be the case of how he met opposition, even in the midst of blessing. I'd love to have read those first ten verses for the sake of time, will not. But look at verse 5 on down, because it gives the context. The Lord Jesus Christ came to the place where Zacchaeus had shimmied up the sycamore tree, he was a little man, little stature, short of stature. He wasn't able to see. All he wanted to do initially was just to cast eyes upon the Savior. He wasn't even able to see him because of his height problem. Because the people pressed upon the Savior to hear what he was saying. You see that at the end of verse 4, that he was not able to come in because of the press. Remember, it's not verse 4. It's one of them verses where he couldn't come in to see him because of the press. But how the Lord Jesus went to the base of that tree, how he paused briefly, looked up to where Zacchaeus was, and addressed that man by his name. Zacchaeus, look at it, halfway down verse 5. Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he did that very thing. Look at verse 6. It tells us he did it to the very letter. He made haste. He didn't delay. He came down and received him, but not only received him, but received him joyfully. But then the murmuring started. You see that in verse 7? And those that were responsible for the murmuring are essentially those whom the Lord addressed and spoke to from verse 11 through to the very end of verse 28. That was his audience. That was the Savior's congregation that day. See verse 7, And when they saw it, 
they all murmured, saying that he, Christ, was gone to be guest with a man that was a sinner. Now, Zacchaeus didn't really concern himself with these individuals. He was so focused, there's a lesson for us, so focused upon the Savior that he was blinkered against what would detract him from his newly found Christian walk. But look at how the Lord Jesus Christ turned this around. Of course, there, Christ, verse 9 and 10, Christ was addressing and speaking to Zacchaeus. But in verse 11, he began to address these people. These murmurers, these complainers, these, no doubt, religious people. For the Son of Man has came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then verse 11, And as they heard these things, the they that's referred to in verse 7, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should suddenly appear. And that's what I want us to think about for these few moments that we have this evening. I want us to think about the coming of Christ's kingdom. Now, first of all, we want to think very simply as we work our way down through these few verses that we read. We want to think, first of all, of the key to this parable. You see, the key to understanding and the key to us being able to flesh out the details of what this parable means, this parable of the Lord Jesus Christ, is given ascension. And this is so important. I always say this. You might get tired of me saying things like this if you're listening to me too often. Is by its context. Context is king as well as its content as well. The context of this passage of Scripture Lies just a few chapters. Think about it. Think about where we are here. We're in Luke chapter 19. Not in Luke chapter 5 or 4 or 3 or 2 or 1. We're in Luke chapter 19. Just a few chapters before the Jews come in and as they were conspiring, just before they conspired, just before they came in to capture and crucify the Savior. Put it this way. Chapter 19 lies so close toward the end of Christ's ministry. And let me put it like this as well. Let me put it even closer than that. The Lord Jesus Christ knew exactly where he was in the time frame of things. You see, he is omniscient. As the Son of God, he is omniscient. He knows all things. He knew exactly what was around the corner. Even though his disciples and those around him didn't know the time frame and how close the end really was or the details that the end would hold, he knew all about it. In fact, here we have the Lord Jesus Christ standing and speaking and ministering and calling this individual, for instance, Zacchaeus, just a few days before the cross, and he knew it. In fact, it was just after our reading, in the very same chapter, in fact, we don't even have to go into chapter 20, that we read of Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem on the cold of an ass. Verse 29 onwards records that for us. That's the context. That's how close we are here in this passage to the cross. In fact, this was in all likelihood one of the last times, not the last, but one of the last times the Savior would have had opportunity to publicly and freely preach and teach the people in this manner. He was just about to leave this scene of time following his mock trial, his scourging, crucifixion, all of that. And he knew every detail of what would happen in the next few days. However, 
here right before the end, his focus. And indeed in doing so, he brought our focus and our attention to the second coming and how he would come to the world again. Now what we've thought about is just really what follows and what precedes this parable. Uh, What we have immediately here, we have the closing words of verse 11 in our reading. Look at verse 11 again. That makes it so clear when we think of it in that context. You see, I think very often we're guilty of coming to a portion as a minister or as a preacher, certainly as a congregation, coming to a portion and just lifting that little portion out and and scrubbing it clean from what came before it and what after it and just deal with it as it stands. We really need to look at it in its context. Look at the last part of verse 11 particularly. We'll read the whole verse. As they, these detractors, these complainers from verse 7, as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem. That speaks of the cross. And because they thought, this is so clear from this context, because they thought that the kingdom of God must immediately appear. And that's why he was speaking upon these things. Now, if the context, all that was spoke about earlier, not just that verse, but all that we spoke about earlier gives us a clue to the subject matter that was going to be taught. This verse, verse 11, gives irrefutable evidence, black and white, clear evidence of what was just about to come. It was indeed reference to the coming kingdom of God. But what about the content? We're thought of there about the context, where it lies in Scripture, what comes before, what comes after, its context. But what about the actual content? What about what we actually have read of in these verses? Well, I want to think about the many characters that we come across in this parable that the Savior gave. Throughout this passage, we have different characters, all very different, brought in, described by the Lord as he gives this parable, really to this mixed group, largely of Jews, though, who had come to hear him speak. Well, look at verse 12, the first part of it. In fact, from verse 12 right through the 16 verses of this parable, we have dotted throughout it reference after reference to the noble man. And this is a direct reference to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's a key. And then we have the servants mentioned here as well, first mentioned in the first part of verse 13. And he called his ten servants and delivered unto them ten pounds and gave them this message, Occupy till I come. The servants, right throughout the passage there mentioned. This speaks to us of individuals such as you and I, the born-again believer, the Christian, the servants of the Lord. And then we have the citizens of the land mentioned as well. And I've let the cat out of the bag a little bit here already in the reading, because they're only mentioned in two places, really at the shoulders, if you like, of the parable. They're only mentioned in verse 14, and in that quite a scathing way. But they're also mentioned again in the very last verse of the parable, verse 27. And there we find a very swift and final end to their opposition, a swift end to the hatred that they showed openly and expressed. They actually followed him with a message. Such was their hatred against him. Speaking of the Savior, their hatred of the nobleman, the one that they had really rejected out of hand, and in that unequivocal language that we read off at the last part of verse 14, where they said, They actually sent a message after him saying, 
It's one thing whispering among ourselves. We shouldn't do it. But they went further than that. They sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man rule over us. And that speaks to us of those in the world, those who are off the world, those who are outside the fold of Christ, those that have rejected him and indeed the message of the gospel. But there's something else that's very important that I want us to think about before we move on. And that is what the nobleman gave to each of his servants. And indeed the message, the command, it was more than merely a message, a command that he gave them before he departed into that far off land to build his kingdom. Look at verse 13. And he called his ten servants and delivered unto them, or delivered them, ten pounds. That's what he gave them. And said unto them, four words just, occupy till I come. And let me submit to you this evening, and I admit that I cannot be as dogmatic in saying this as I am with the other comparisons that we've made, but I believe the reference to the pounds spoken of in these verses can be taken off and can be considered, even for our purposes this evening, to be spoken of as our salvation. Now, I can't be dogmatic where Scripture is not. But I'm making an assumption tonight, and perhaps I'm wrong, and if I'm wrong, perhaps the Lord's speaking to you. But I'm making an assumption this evening, as this is the midweek prayer meeting of the church here in Hillsborough, that I am preaching, quite literally preaching, to the converted, as I ask you this evening. As God's word challenges me here, and I've said this so often before I preach to anybody else, I preach first of all to myself. Before I point the finger at anyone else, there's three fingers pointing back. What are you, what am I, what are we doing with our salvation? In the light of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we doing with the gift of God that we have got? The gift of God that is salvation. What am I doing with it? I have a policy. People laugh at me, make fun at me at times, and tell me that I'm wrong for this policy. But my policy, if I can help it at all, is not to turn down an opportunity, not to turn down a booking. And you know, sometimes that can backfire on us. Sometimes we're that tired, we can do 22-hour days at times. But what are we doing with our salvation? Are we using every opportunity? Are we missing any opportunities? What does the Lord himself say? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 15, there's a challenge for us. Perhaps you'll turn to it. In fact, we have a similar challenge in all three synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Very similar words. We'll turn you to one of them. We'll not ask you to turn to them all. Because in all three synoptics, Mark, Mark, Matthew 5, verse 15, also Mark 4, 21, Luke 11, verse 20, or 33, we have the similar vein of thought. What does he say? Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light to all that are in the house. That's what we're to do with our salvation, with that message that burns within us, that message, that good news, that gospel message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ told Zacchaeus and all that were in his house that day in verse 10? What a lovely verse. I stood in an open air not that long ago, in fact, a couple of open airs, and preached mentioning those words. Maybe not specifically in those words. But what words they are. 
For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Surely we have the light, the wonderful news, the gospel news, even our own salvation. And yet so often we hide it under a bushel. Matthew 5 verse 15 certainly challenges us at times, I'm sure. Mark 4, 21, a similar vein of thought is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick. Luke eleven thirty three. no man, when he had lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, hiding it, in other words, neither under a bushel but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. Do we teach even the children to sing? Even the children in the children's meetings. Isn't it wonderful working with children? Because they just wear their heart in their sleeve. They can't hide their emotions. Whenever they smile, you know they actually mean it. And it will teach them to sing, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. What are we doing with our salvation even this evening? You have opportunities that I will never have, and vice versa. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you even from our own experience over this past couple of weeks. I must give, actually, we reported, intended to give a report on the blessing that we've enjoyed over this past couple of weeks. Because the Lord is, I said it in his word, we should be surprised if he would do anything else other than what he says. He is building his church that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Two Mondays ago, 14 of us, I was asked to lead a group of young people. So 14 of us left County Down about uh, two Mondays ago at five o'clock in the morning to catch the boat out of Dublin to go across in one big trip to Tavistock. You know that we have a church over there in Tavistock. We've had a church there for the last 30 years. But it may surprise you to know that Tavistock Free Presbyterian Church, throughout its history, has never actually had a children's work. Any children that have come in are just children really from the church families, from the minister's family and so on, never actually able to reach out into the community with any measure of success and bring any children in. So the Youth Council had approached the work over there in Tavistock, and Mr. Stephen Miller, who has been in charge of that work essentially, under the Mainland Commission since September time. And the plan was that we were to go across in a 17-seater minibus with the back three seats taken out, so it was really a 14-seater minibus, but with enough room to put in a Euro pallet. You know what it's like traveling with girls, and fellas are worse than girls nowadays, man. For eight days, over a, over a large day, over, uh, over different meetings and uh, all the rest of it, all the stuff we would need. Of course, I had to throw the pipes in there too. They take a bit of room. And we traveled across via the Dublin ferry, across to Hollyhead, drove flat out, which isn't that fast, 70, 60 mile an hour on the limiter, the whole road down to Tavistock, I suppose after about 500 miles of driving. We arrived in Tavistock about 11 o'clock on the Monday night. And we got up the next day and commenced to do, after a time of devotions, some outreach in the area. We did doors, two to two, to, to a door, in and around a little area. Tavistock is in Cornwall, and just over the county border, we have, uh, we have another county called Devon, I think it's called. And about four and a half miles from Tavistock, there's a little village, and it is a little village. There's a wee main street in it that's so small, they have to put traffic lights on it because it's only room enough for one-way traffic. That's how small uh, this little village is, by the name of Gunnus Lake. 
a mining village with a deep history built on the edge of a mountain. It's on its end. It really is. And back in its heyday, that little village had some eight churches. Now, most of them churches are shut down, or those churches are shut down, and uh, one of them has now become the village hall. And we secured the use of the village hall for a brief gospel mission. Thursday night, Friday night, on the Lord's Day afternoon. In fact, Mr. Miller and the team that's been working over there from about February time, late February, early March, have been holding Sabbath evening services in Gunnus Lake Village Hall. And the plan was that we would go out and try to evangelize the area, try to do as many doors as we could, try to do as many open airs as we could, try to speak to as many individuals as we could with little invitations to ask children, first of all, to come into a little green area. It might sound very posh about Hillsborough, but in Gunnus Lake it was literally a field, an acre and a half field on its end in this wee steep village. And I would secure the use of this field to have meetings Wednesday, Thursday, Friday afternoon from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock, fun and games, and then get down to the Word. And then on Thursday night, Friday night, the Lord's Day afternoon, or evening rather, the plan was to have a gospel mission in the village hall, which is that old church. And uh, really, we went in, I suppose, with our faith quite low. We were hoping, with all reports and with the 30-year history without having any children essentially come in, we were hoping, and Mr. Miller was hoping, to get maybe one, maybe two children to come in to those meetings throughout the day from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock. Well, you can imagine our delight whenever we totted up all the numbers at the end and there were 21 new names on those lists. 21 children that come in and really were so open. You want to hear the questions they were asking us. I think some of them were primed by their parents. Deep questions. Questions that showed a deep understanding of things. There is an underpinning knowledge of Scripture. I firmly believe that. And uh, Mr. Henderson, myself, the minister of Money Slain, I was overleading the team. He was my 2IC, my right-hand man, and uh, a body of 13 young people that were so capable, so able, so varied, so mixed, from right across the country, from uh, ranging about 18 through to 25-year-old, were there just willing to do whatever. It was five girls, six boys. It was a great mix of a team. And we were able to hold those meetings Throughout the day, and then the next evening, uh, the mission was to start in the village hall. And even in that, the village hall meetings, we really, heart, hand on heart, we didn't really expect anybody to come in to those meetings. Uh, what we were doing, we were trying to invite people to come in. It was all, it was a hall, maybe two-thirds the size of this. And the seats were all spaced out. And we were really hoping to get somebody in. But feeling that, on the invitations and the literature, it mentioned the Facebook page where we would be putting out a live feed of the meetings of Gunnus Lake, which would also be able to be picked up after the fact later on. And uh, we're really hoping to get people to watch the thing on Facebook. But the very first night, we had people, that was a Thursday night, we had a lady who was reached through her daughter, the daughter's called Summer, the lady's called Hannah, you can pray for Hannah, who came in that very first night of the mission, that was the Thursday night, and took her place up near the front and just sat drinking in every single word that was said. I led the first meeting. All the young people uh, 
introduced themselves, said a wee bit, sang a couple of times, and then Mr. Henderson on the first night, he brought the word, and then we reversed roles the next night, and so on. That's the way we operated. And even that very first night, the meetings were set to begin at half past six in the evening, and uh, even in the very first night, about a quarter past six, I went out with my phone. I just wanted to photograph the church, photograph the front of the building. And I went out, and there just happened to be at that time a homeless man walking past, a man with a beard to about here, and a boy that you would know was homeless from about 12 feet away. Uh, all his stuff was lying in the bus stop, and he walked past me, and I got chatting to him, uh, managed to get him stopped and chatting to him for a few minutes, and, I, and he said to me, are you the minister? I says, I'm not the minister, he's in the hall, but I'm a minister, and I would love it if you come in with me to Gunnerstick, to the wee hall here, the wee church. We're just standing outside it. And he opened his hand and he had a pound coin in it. And he says, I'm just going to the shop now, but I'll maybe see after that. And I thought, well, that sounds like a typical excuse. So away he went. He closed his hand again. He had the pound coin in it into the shop, which was two or three houses down. And after about a minute or so, he came out again. He came up to me and he said, I'll go. So I marched him into this hall. It was great. Marched him into the hall and sat him in near the back somewhere. And uh, that was all right. So that was him. He was in. And there were two people. Now, I offered him the hymn book, but he didn't have glasses. He wasn't able to see, so we just forgot about that. And uh, there was another man that we'd spoken to earlier on up at the field. I actually thought he was a parent because we had a breakdown in the bus. I had to disappear, come back after a while after we got it sorted out. Uh, she'd burst a main hose coming off the water pump. Uh, but even the little foxes, the Lord used those things. Uh, and, and I could tell you, I could keep you here all night with stories, how the Lord even used that for good. Uh, in, in many ways, different ways. But uh, I came back and I saw this man sitting with a bottle with a tin of beer, listening to what Mr. Henderson that day was preaching in, in the afternoon service to the children. And we'd spoken to that fellow, you can remember him, his name's Chris. Uh, he was either drunk or high or both, I'm not sure what. But he assured us at two o'clock in the field that he would definitely be at the meeting that night. And uh, he would come in, but he didn't come in. And about at 20 past six that night, Mr. Henderson and I went out. Before the meeting would begin, we went out to do a wee quick walk around the village to see if we could find him to bring him in. No sign of him anywhere. And I must say we were very disappointed. Especially Mr. Henderson, he was preaching that night. He was especially disappointed because he, was re he had promised him that he would come in. So I got up anyway, started to lead the meeting at half past six. By the time I got to hand it over to the preacher, it was maybe seven o'clock, and I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll just go out for a wee dander here and see if I can catch this boy. And I did. I went out, and there he was, sitting down a couple of hundred yards down from the church at a, at a bus stop. And it was all I could do to get him to come in. I nearly gave up to my shame. I nearly gave up. But he came in with me to that meeting. And the two of us sat in the back. And Mr. Henderson preached, I think he was in Romans chapter 5. And he preached, and this man didn't have a Bible, obviously. But as Mr. As Mr. Henderson preached... And we sat at the back, every reference uh, our brother turned to, I turned to it in my Bible and just so happened I had it either underlined or highlighted with a highlighter or both. And I pointed the, the verse out to the man, he was sitting beside me here to my right, pointed it out to him and you could actually hear him reading the words. And he was sort of murmuring below his breath and chatting away and I'll tell you, hanging to every word. I never had an experience like it in my life. And... Uh, it was, it was mighty. It really was mighty. And he listened. You could hear a pin drop throughout the whole meeting. About an hour and ten minute meeting. You could have heard a pin drop throughout the whole meeting. 
And at the end of that meeting, that lady, she later told us, that later, lady called Hannah, she'd be a lady, I suppose, in her early 30s. Hannah, who, she was homeless in the street 16 years ago. You remember Hannah. Hannah asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into her heart. And even the very next day, she got chatting to one of the girls the next day. Such a diverse group, such a great group we had. And uh, she, was, she was regular chatting to those girls even yet. Uh, over WhatsApp and phone calls and all the rest of it. And she got chatting to one of those girls, Rachel Strip, the Reverend Strip's daughter. And uh, she asked her, she says, I noticed last night all the females in the building were wearing hats and a skirt. Why is that? And she told her, uh, and pointed to her in scripture, why we use head covering and why uh, we dress the way we do. And she said to the, Rachel of how uh, whenever I was been brought up, whenever I was taught uh, in church background, I was taught it was disrespectful to use head covering in church. And Rachel said, well, this is what scripture teaches. We go on the basis of scripture, not on what somebody's taught us or anything else. And the next night, we couldn't believe it. Mr. Henderson and I were standing at the front, ready to start the meeting. The next evening, she came in with a hat and a skirt on and sat in amongst the young people. And it was just unbelievable, the change in that young lady. You remember Hannah, because I'll tell you what, the devil's been on her back already. Uh, she'll be texting us with questions and calling us with questions. And uh, every time you see her, we give her a wee TBS Bible that we had, a smaller Bible than this hymn book, and uh, she opened it up. Actually, the, the image that's burned into my retina is a turnaround one day in the middle of the meeting, and she was lying in the grass with her Bible open, just reading line after line after line. And every time you see her, she's pages turned down, and she's, she's verses marked, and she's got 101 questions every time you see Hannah. Uh, it was a hard parting whenever we left, but how the Lord has blessed even in that, uh, even, even in the wee things like the, the bus bursting a pipe. Uh, and I just wonder, it just challenges me, you know, how we come to passages like this and how we, we look at, we're not even getting to the, the portion that I hope to preach on. The Lord Jesus Christ, the, the master here, he summoned, we read of three of them, he summoned his servants to come back and to give a report. And I just wonder how it'll be whenever the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again. He is coming back. Do we live? Do we operate? Do we witness? Do we run the church? Do we run our lives? Do we run our families? In the light of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we do that? Do we or do we not do that? I challenge myself and I would have to say I do not live to the standard that I ought to. Because when I'm examined, every one of us will be examined. He commanded, look at verse 15 of this passage. He commanded the servants to be called unto him who had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. If this is a picture of, and I can't be dogmatic in this, I stand to be corrected in these things. If this is a picture of our salvation, every one of those young people that went away last week, this is two weeks ago, last week I was over preaching at a conference with Crown College with 250 young people. That was, that's another story for another day, how they were scores counseled during that week but over there in Tavistock every one of those young people you could ask them anything we went and did open airs I take the pipes with me for any open air over here open air take the pipes it grabs people's attention it holds their attention I preach with my pipes over my arm so that people are thinking especially tourists and all he'll maybe pipe again let's stay to hear what he's going to say and over in Tavistock, I've never seen or witnessed a thing like it of how people just flood in on you. 
from distance. People coming in from three, four, five hundred yards away because they hear the strain of bagpipes. And then our young people are standing right around the whole square in Tavistock, to our left or right behind us, right across the square where we're preaching right across to, to the town hall. And they're ready, always, every one of them, ready. And this is what we should be, ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us. In fact, one of the girls that came up in the WhatsApp group, we created a group, and there was a prayer request on Monday evening. Please pray for one of the young people that she's going to have, in, in about 10 minutes, she's due to have a video call with a Jehovah Witness that she met over there who's got question, question, question. They're seeking. They're seeking. There's a void in people's lives, and they know that their false religion does not satisfy. I believe every one of us will stand before the judgment throne, before the judgment bar of Christ. Now, while every one, every single one of my sins, past, present, future, every one of my sins are under the blood, I will have to give an account to God for every missed opportunity and for every opportunity taken as well. How will I stand that day? I often think, and it goes up, the shivers go up my spine whenever I think about it, I often think about Archbishop Usher's cry on his deathbed. He was an Episcopal, but he had a lot of time for the Presbyterians here in Ulster. And he cried on his deathbed, Lord, forgive me for my sins, especially my sins of omission. What are, I'm not asking what are we doing, I'm asking what are we not doing? What are we not doing? The Savior had a question here. He commanded the servants to be, look at verse 15. He commanded the servants to be called unto him, to, who he, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Do you realize this evening that a lifetime of service is worth even one soul? Go after that one soul. Go after that one or that two or that three or that ten or that twenty. Never be satisfied. Never think we've done enough. People do keep me going for running yourself into the ground and all the rest of it. Occupy till I come. Work, labor. We could go into a wee word study on that. We'll not do that. Time's gone. But how the Lord gives, I believe, I believe this. Every single day the Lord gives opportunities. Because I'll tell you what, the world out there, they're not reading their Bibles. They're not reading scripture. They're not reading this book. But they read us. They look to us. They'll, they'll judge us. They'll judge the Savior by what they see us do or by the, what they see us not do. Just you think of this passage in its entirety, and we'll get down to prayer now because our time is gone. But how, if this pound is the gift of salvation, what are we doing with it? Think of that third man, this wicked servant. He folded it up nicely in a wee napkin, and he got it all nice, and he buried it, and he patted it down nicely. What a waste that is. May the Lord bless us and help us even to stand out and to preach out the gospel message that Jesus saves. Are we ashamed? Well, sung that first hymn, 306. Are we ashamed? I just wonder where we are and what are we doing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, sing 437, please. Just a verse of this and then I'll...